Stand Firm Conference 2023, hosted by Hope Reform Baptist Church in Underwood in partnership with Ascension Church in Spring Hill and Ormo, Reformation Church in Waco, and Hope Reform Baptist Church, Gold Coast in Helensville. Don't just sit on the bench, check out the details of these churches in the description below and be active within a local church. May God bless and equip you for good works. Excellent. We're going to welcome up our next speaker. He is the co-author of It's Good to Be a Man, which is a handbook for godly masculinity, husband of Emily and the father of seven children. He's dedicated to evangelizing and discipling his local community as the senior pastor of East River Church in Ohio, America. But I do have it, I have heard that he was nearly not able to join us uh, for this conference as he was required to hand over his handgun when he arrived, uh, which was, that was pretty difficult for him. But I'm pretty sure his main concern, I think it was said that if I don't have my gun, how else am I meant to defend myself against the spiders, the snakes, the crocodiles, the sharks, and those vicious drop bears here in Australia? But luckily, he's learned to wrestle the crocodiles, he's learned to stomp on those spiders, and we have him here uh, with us today. So let's welcome him up, the man himself, Michael Foster. Thank you. Is this on? Yeah, it is. Good. Everyone at home is referring to me as the man himself now. They're mocking me. My wife in particular. All right. You ready to go? All right. Giddy up. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for the work of your spirit and your people. You are such a good God. You don't leave us to ourselves, but you fill us with your Holy Spirit and lead us into repentance and to new life. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The West has tossed off biblical orthodoxy, and they've called it a revolution. I think like a sexual revolution. But it was, in reality, a revolt, or to be more precise, a rebellion. And the cost of this uh, rebellion has been uh, societal perversion and chaos. And things are bad, real bad. Uh, So we do need a reformation. We need individuals, families, churches, and a broader, uh, and a broader society also needs to be reformed, reshaped by the truth of God. And reformation, of course, requires reformers. Uh, and as you all know, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm very much interested in, in localism. What I mean by localism is just uh, being, giving the time and place God's puts you priority. That's all I mean by that. So my focus is uh, the reformation of the local church. That's what I tend to think about. And I briefly want to contrast for you two approaches to reformation, two mindsets. The first is the annoying visionary dreamer. The second is the plotting principle pragmatist. These two approaches, for better or worse, can be applied to whatever domain God has put you to be an agent of reform. So reformation should always start with the individual. Reform yourself. Grow in godliness and practical competence. That should be your goal and starting place. Uh, but uh, individual reformation at some point must spill out into other domains, such as the church and then, of course, broader society. And I'd like to see a lot of pastors be raised up to fight this battle from the pulpit. Like it or not, wide-scale reformation tends to start top-down, not bottom-up. But this reformation is going to require more non-ministers, men and women in the pews, men and women like you, taking action. To do this, you must have the right uh, frame of mind. Tactics and strategies matter, but they flow from your uh, frame of mind, from your attitude, from your belief. 
What then is the right frame of mind? Well, the reformer is neither a compromiser nor a revolutionary. The compromiser has a can of paint. He just whitewashes over the problems. The revolutionary has a can of gasoline. He just burns everything back to the ground. But the reformer has a toolbox. He knows that culture is always a fixer-upper. Reformers are pragmatic but principled. They recognize that both personal and corporate change is incremental. It's a form of sanctification. They don't create from nothing. They reform what exists, and that is key. Here are three things that are necessary if we're going to see reformation in the real world and not just geeky online forums or meetings uh, like in, <laughs> with like two or three guys or something, right? First, you must accept that, uh, like individuals, there are no perfect churches, and all churches require further sanctification. In chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says this, I think it's really helpful. This universal church hath uh, been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. In particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospels taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. And it goes on. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. So, no doubt there are many churches that are synagogues of Satan, which you can't join, you can't be part of, right? They're they're not merely impure. They are uh, in active and willful revolt against the clear teachings of Scripture, especially the core teachings. Churches with women pastors who preach a false Marxist gospel, who condone same-sex attraction, who preach egalitarianism, who permit divorce for just about any old reason, and so forth. To join these churches would be to become a compromiser, a whitewasher. But you do need a church, and you have to deal with its imperfections and make small concessions. This is true with all institutions and organizations made up of sinners. They all have impurities, the revolutionary refuses to make concessions, right? He thinks that's like, that's him having a moral backbone. But what he really is is what Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, called a visionary dreamer. So second, you must not be a visionary dreamer, at least not in the sense that Bonhoeffer used that phrase. In his book, Life Together, which honestly, it's worth buying for the first chapter. I love the first chapter of that book. After the first chapter, it gets a little weird, in my opinion. But the first chapter is amazing. In that first chapter, he writes, Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of the emotions, but the God, but the God of truth. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, we'll collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community. It must be banished if genuine community is to survive. 
He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. So Bonhoeffer's talking about a man who lives in his head. He's crafted a church which can only exist in his mind. And when any church fails to live up to his vision, he hates it. It's a wish dream rooted in fiction, not reality. Thus, he must first become disillusioned with his wish dream so that he can get to work in reality. This is part of the problem right now, uh, and I'll get to this a little bit more, but this is part of the problem with, the, with internet, with podcasts and whatever. You're talking about ideals, and unless that podcaster or writer is very disciplined, uh, you can think that they're living that out perfectly where they're at, and, and they're not. No one is. Bonhoeffer goes on and says, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. <laughs> this is a side note. This is every woman, every crunchy woman in their long dresses on Instagram telling me how to parent with a five-year-old kid. Be quiet. You don't know anything. You barely know anything at all. You have a five-year-old, right? Like, you can give some things, but these guys are parenting experts who haven't raised an adult yet. Right? Someone asked me if I'd ever write a book on parenting. I said, it, as soon as I have a grandkid that is communing in a local church and fears God, I'll consider it. But until then, I'll make comments here and there, but I don't want to pretend to be an expert in something that I'm still in the midst of. Someone asked me, like, what's advice for raising daughters? I can give you advice to about 10 years old because that's how old my oldest daughter is. Right? She's starting to get, she's on the edge of puberty, and I can tell you right now it's getting intense. Um, so... <laughs> When she's happy, she's happy. When she's not, she's not. So, but dreamers, idealists, they become proud and pretentious. He goes on, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own laws, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of the brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things don't go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. A guy that really influenced me was uh, Rowan Allen, he's a great missionary. A.W. Pink would be another guy that really influenced me. To a much lesser degree, R.J. Rushdoony. Um, one thing that all three of those men have in common is late in their life, they weren't in fellowship in any local church. And they all were reformers of sorts, and they had ideals that they were after, and some of, most of which I think were at least rooted in Scripture, but they didn't see it come to fruition, and they got embittered, and they ended their life re relatively isolated from the local church. That can happen to you. That can happen to you if you become a visionary. If you have this like perfect formula, you have to realize. I've met so many embittered, whiny, visionary dreamers who have come to despise the church and think of themselves as a lone voice in the wilderness, unappreciated, unrecognized, persecuted, and rejected. Maybe you are Jeremiah or, the, or John the Baptist, maybe. Uh, but you're probably just a self-righteous fool who lacks discretion and shrewdness. Reformation requires both. You have to actually have 
discretion and shrewdness. I keep meeting these guys online that uh, I, I got these people that send me these crazy emails asking like all these things about our church. Like how many psalms do you sing a week? Right, if you're asking that, please just don't come, right? Now we sing the psalms and I love the psalms, but how many psalms do I sing a week? Just one too few for you, brother. That's what my email will be back. Right, I, I, that's, that sort of micromanagement, that sort of exactness is, is going to be um, a divisive brother and not working towards the mission. I get a lot of things like that. And uh, there's kind of a desire for designer Christianity right now, right? All these little boutique secondary doctrines that have value and are good as long as uh, they're anchored in the, the core of biblical doctrine, the core truths, the cardinal doctrines. Anyhow, this brings me uh, to third point. You must be a principled pragmatist. Now, all theology is practical. All practice is theological, right? There's always practical consequences out of your theology. You work it out. And anyone that's doing something, they, it's out of an assumption about who God is and who they are and all that. And so, for example, if you're, if you're up in the middle of the night, anxious and full of worry, uh, that tells me that you need to grow in your theology of God as father, God as a provider. The more you realize that theology, believe it, the more comforted you'll be. And a lot of life is our professed theology and our functional theology coming into alignment over time. Right? So a lot of us have really good theology on paper, but living that out is a whole other thing. And so a lot of times our problem is just that we don't believe what we say we believe. Like we haven't really wrestled with it. Uh, I've learned a lot by studying uh, Reformation era uh, Geneva, especially as it relates to Reformation sexuality, their beliefs, beliefs on that. My main theological influences are J.C. Ryle, Thomas Watson, and above all, John Calvin. John Calvin I love. I've been reading him since I was 19 years old. I, I, was, actually an, I was against Calvinism when I was reading Calvin because I, all I had known of was uh, kind of these hyper-Calvinists, like fatalists and whatever, and I'm like, well, Calvin doesn't teach that, so it's just someone using his name wrongly. <laughs> then I later realize, oh, I am indeed a Calvinist. Um, but, um, but I really, I love his commentaries. He's so practical. His sermons are hilarious to read. They're nothing like modern sermons. There's almost no intro. There's almost no conclusion. He just opens up his Bible and teaches. Very practical. He never talks about himself. Um, I think that's okay in some degree, but he never talks about himself. And he uses very subtle um, illustrations. So it's just so different. I recommend reading those old sermons. Anyhow, Calvin has really affected me. And uh, my, uh, I know nothing about Australian history other than I learned that Captain Cook came here and then he got ate by Hawaiians later. Uh, did you know that? Right? I'm sure they ate him with pineapple. Um, but, um, but, and I don't really know much about, uh, like, anything outside of the U.S., with the exception of Alexandrian history and anything to do with Geneva. I know a lot there. So anyway, um, one interesting historic book, it's not for everyone, is Sex, Marriage, and Family Life in John Calvin's Geneva. And the subtitle is Courtship, Engagement, and Marriage. Um, and there's another volume by the same author, which has Geneva's consistory records, uh, which is something like notes or minutes from an elder board meeting. And that's a, that's a super nerdy thing to read. But listening to their judgments, one of my favorite chapters in there, they, they rebuke a man for not uh, having sex with his wife frequently enough, right? So God bless Geneva. Um, anyhow, uh, 
Listen to this quote. What makes the consistory, something like an elders board, record particularly valuable for our project is that John Calvin sat as a judge on the consistory. He rarely missed the weekly meetings of the consistory, and he sometimes dominated its proceedings, particularly in complex cases that required advanced legal training. The consistory provided Calvin with a laboratory to test and refine many of the theological ideas in his institutes, commentaries, sermons, and statutes. It was one thing for Calvin to insist that marriages should be publicly celebrated with parental consent. It was quite another to decide whether a secretly married couple with a brand new child should be separated and their child thereby illegitimated and become a public ward. It was one thing to thunder loudly from the pulpit that adulterers of all sorts should be stoned. It was quite another to decide whether an engaged couple caught in heavy foreplay in their own bedroom should be sent to the gallows. It was one thing to declare anathema on interreligious marriage, which means um, dif mostly different denominations. We're not talking about Islam and Christian. Uh, and it was quite another thing to deal with hundreds of desperate new immigrants who poured into Geneva with spouses of curious confessions on their arms. It was one thing for Calvin to say that married couples must live together at all costs, save in case of adultery and uh, desertion. It was quite another to insist on such reconciliation when a battered wife, already bent and lame from her husband's repeated savageries, should uh, stood before him with newly blackened eyes. It was on the consistory bench that Calvin was forced to integrate theory and practice, theology and law, principle and precept, rule and equity. Some of these consistory cases forced him to rethink and refine his prior theological positions on sex, marriage, and family. Other cases sent him scurrying back to his Bible and his books in search of new edification. Still other cases drew him back to the rules and procedures of the Roman civil law and Roman Catholic canon law. The consistory experience certainly made some parts of Calvin's Reformation messier, more volatile, more difficult to follow or appreciate at points. But it also made his Reformation more realistic, rigorous, and resilient. In the end, consistory work ensured that Calvin's new teaching on sex, marriage, and family were both principled and pragmatic, not only formed through new biblical exegesis, I would argue that it wasn't, it was refreshed anyway, but, but also reformed through practical experience, right? Be a principled pragmatist. Applying principles requires wisdom and a degree of flexibility. It is easy to theorize, but often hard to realize your theories, your ideals. It's as Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until he gets punched in the mouth, right? What looks perfect on paper might not work at all in reality. You tend to take a more humble approach after reality lands a few good left hooks to your jaw. It is easy for pastors and other men to act in an intemperate manner in dark days like ours. Compromise is widespread in the church, and the reformers are few. Thus, the man can feel overwhelmed and embattled. In such a state, it's not hard for a zealous man to lash out against compromise, but do so in a way that causes as much harm as good. A desire for reform must be regulated by charity, patience, and the bond of peace. Calvin, writing on the moderation of discipline, writes... Nor must pastors themselves, when unable to reform all things which need correction to the extent which they could wish, cast up their ministries or be unwanted, uh, unwanted severity throw, throw the whole church into confusion. In a similar vein, Augustine writes, 
Every pious reason and mode of ecclesiastical discipline ought to always have regard to the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This apostle commands us uh, to keep by bearing mutually with each other. If it's not kept, the medicine of discipline begins or begins to be not only superfluous, but even pernicious and therefore ceases to be medicine. And Cyprian, again, says much the same. Let a man then mercifully correct what he can. What he cannot correct, let him bear patiently and in love bewail and lament. So those are the reformers. Those are the church fathers. And they lived through much rougher times than, than we have up to this point, at least. The prophets suffered. The apostles suffered. Christ suffered. You want reformation? You want to see change in the real world? You're going to have to suffer both in little ways and big ways. That's just part of it. Don't be a whiny, embittered, visionary dreamer who only criticizes those actually doing something. Right? I got, this is one of my favorite things, um, that, one of my favorite comments. Um, uh, there's, you know, these drag queens, like, reading books to kids, right? Groomers trying to uh, pervert these children's minds in these li- libraries. And, uh, you know, everyone's just, like, out there, pro- well, people started protesting them. And I thought, well, man, why don't we just, like, go in a library and, and read the Bible or good children's books to these kids? Um, and so I just stood up, walked out of my office, went two blocks over to the library and said, hey, what do I have to do to rent out a room here? And they're like, oh, it's like, it's like 20 bucks. I was like, here's $20. I rented it out. <laughs> and then I got a book. And then I told a bunch of people I was going to do it. And then, like, 30 kids showed up, and I read it to them. That was it. Because everyone's like, what was your strategy for getting into the libraries? Like, <laughs> like how'd you choose the book? Well, this one by James Shrimpton was a guy I know on Twitter, and he asked me to look at uh, the manuscript of his book, and he actually got it published by Crossway, and I thought it was a really good presentation of the gospel. That was it, you know? Like, everyone thinks there's these, like, really complicated strategic thoughts, and usually it's just taking action. So I go in there, and I read, and it's... And it's, it's uh, it's really good. But when I was talking about doing that, there's one guy that comments on my Facebook page. And Facebook comments are just slightly better than YouTube comments, right? <laughs> just slightly. But it, he's like, what we really should do is we should abolish libraries, right? The government shouldn't be involved in that at all. Okay. All right. Well, have at it. Go abolish libraries. Like, how are you going to do it? Right? One of my favorite questions to ask idealists is, what are you going to do about it? And I hate that. Well, I'm just going to talk about it. I'm involved in our awareness camp. I'm trying to get the word out. Oh, you just want to tweet about it. You want to write about it. You don't want to do anything, right? You're such a great help, okay? Um, so um, that guy says that, and I said, well, I'll tell you what. I bet that I actually go to the library and read to these kids before you've taken any practical step to abolish libraries, right? And I find people love talking about big ideas that don't require action, because it makes them feel like they're doing something and that they're principled, like they're, they're not a compromiser like you. Well, you don't compromise your theoretics, but you're a compromise in your day-to-day life because you're not living out the gospel. You're not doing these things. You're not doing anything. You're just talking about it and judging your brothers. So actually do something, right? Work for reformation. Things don't have to be perfect. That You're growing it. Again, sac- uh, uh, sanctification is incremental. Like I had this guy that he's always trying to give, his big thing is death penalty. He's like one of these reconstructionists that just thinks if we just kill everybody um, for like committing sins, like you know, particular sins, not just any old sin. Um, like I think vegans, he would kill them. But, um, <laughs> but 
I'm just joking. Um, but uh, there's some Australian, uh, Australian vegan, like, right now, like, hitting me up on Twitter over and over again, uh, mocking me, uh, which is good. I don't want to be liked by them. But anyhow, he, um, you know, he's, like, really hardcore on theonomy and reconstructionism and all these other big doctrines that maybe you've heard these words before. And I asked him, I said, so how long did it take you to get from being kind of Arminian, um, he's a Presbyterian as well, from a Baptist, whatever, to your current set of positions? He said, oh, I'd say it took me about 10 years. And I said, so, okay, if people are 50% smarter and wiser than you, it's going to take them five years. Why are you trying to get people uh, from, from A to B, like, in one conversation or right away, like it takes time for people's minds to change on things. It takes time to work through things. Like I don't want people um, in my church to come to quick conclusions. I'm okay with them thinking through it. I mean, as a general uh, rule in church planning, here's a church planning tip. This should have been the first one. Uh, anyone that comes to your church is like, this is the greatest church I've ever been to. I love it, I love you, you're the greatest. Will I see him again, Craig? You will never see them again. They will not show up. And now, now the people that come and say, oh, this is good, oh, what's this and what's that all about? They might not come back the next Sunday and they'll come back another Sunday. And then they might be gone two more Sundays. They'll come back again. What's going on with those people is those people are considering. They're weighing. They're thinking it through, right? They checked out your church. They went at this other place. They checked it out. And then when they come and settle down at your church, it's because they're principled. It's because they took time to chew on it and land there. Uh, really excited, boisterous people tend to do nothing except talk, 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 right? And those people are worthless, right? They're good, they're good for, I guess, having a couple of drinks and chatting. But when it's time to get to work, there's just no value in them. Here's a few practical things that I'll end with, three in particular, that I... I I'm pulling from the first reformation. So the first reformation was a reclaiming of lost and neglect do, neglected doctrines. So you have things like justification by faith. Also, um, a great book by Stephen Osment. It's called When Fathers Ruled. He shows that a big part of the reformation was rec uh, reclaiming the doctrine of, of sex, marriage, and family. Because the Catholics had really um, gutted it. So that's another thing they reclaimed. Uh, and, but the key here is, is that they didn't create or innovate, right? They recovered, clarified, and expanded. Calvin, when you read the Institutes, you always have like Eastern Orthodox. Well, you guys, do you, you don't probably have very much Eastern Orthodox over here. We're like on the rise in America right now. But Eastern Orthodox are always like for the for Reformed people, church history starts 500 years ago. That's not true. Like, if you read uh, the, the Reformers, they're constantly quoting the Alexandrian Fathers. Uh, uh, Calvin's the one that introduced me to Cyprian, who I ended up naming one of my sons after. He quotes Augustine over and over again. Just like Luther, Calvin uh, was deeply affected by Augustine. But they're pulling ideas from these men. And what I want to point out to you is you can't know what's lost if you don't know doctrine in church history. You don't know what to recover. So there's a couple books that I think are a great place to start. And why I like these books is that they're really tight, easy to read overviews that give you a foundation to build on. Uh, people just don't read. They, they really don't. And it's, it's hard to get them to do it. Uh, but you kind of got to find a way to prime the pump. Right? So th these are the three books I would recommend. First is G.I. Williamson's Study Guide on the Shorter Catechism. So Williamson. 
Uh, that, that's a great, what I love about his study guide in the Shorter Catechism, the Shorter Catechism has a lot of overlap with Baptist. There'd be very little things that you would have issues with in that, if that is your conviction. But it's about three pages per question. There's 107 questions. And so three pages, easy to read every day. You can use them also for family devotions. But he just walks you through basic doctrine. And there's these people now that are showing up at my church that care about what I would call derivative doctrines, right? So it's kind of like theological math. If this is true and that's true and that's true, therefore this must be true, okay? But they're starting here with the answer and they don't know all the other elements that lead to that. And so they can't really defend their view and they don't understand the key things. So um, I'm really pushing these folks to understand uh, key reformational theology, biblical theology. So this three, three uh, pages a day, you'll grow immensely. Another book that's kind of like that is J.I. Packer's Concise Theology. Uh, so he, he'll sum up uh, biblical teaching like so well. It's almost too tight, I would argue. Like you need a little bit more. But that's another one. If you just sit down and read a few chapters of that a week, you're gonna learn so much so quick. He's, he's really a really tight uh, writer. Lastly, um, I'd read um, Trial and Triumphs. It's a great, it's stories from church history. It's like this little tiny book on church history. We, we use it in our um, uh, homeschooling curriculum for, for my children. And it's, it, there's another book called 2,000 Years of Christ's Power by Nicholas Needham, but it's four volumes, right? His fourth volume just came out, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, but just to get you started to know what's happened through church history, it's amazing to me how little Christians know about the Middle Ages, right? The, the Middle Ages are dark ages just because Christians are in the dark on them, right? You'd see that God had been faithful throughout. So those are three places to start to get your basic foundational doctrine laid out. Now, what are some of the lost doctrines today? The two main ones that I see lacking in is anthropology, what it means to be a man, right? And uh, inside of that would be uh, what is a biblical marriage, right? It's not, it's not two dudes. It's not multiple people. It's not animals, right? It's not, a, it's not an adult and a child. It's a man and a woman uh, in covenant love forever and ever and ever, right? Until they die, and then that's what marriage is. It's very clear. But also people don't understand the purposes of marriage, that the hel it's helpful companionship. It's um, protection against sexual immorality, like everyone is talking about singleness. See, that whole thing's such a sham. Oh, some people are called to singleness. They are if they can be chaste, right? But how many people who don't have a gift of celibacy, which is pretty rare, are staying chaste through their 30s, through their, through their 20s? You're pumping with hormones. It's hard enough to get out of your teens, pure, let, let alone through your 20s. And that's why you know the whole thing's a, a, a big game. You just ask them, okay, do you think the singles in your church are, are being pure? through their 20s, and they'll waffle. You watch them. They'll try to get out of that. It's when you pin them to the wall on that and say, you don't love these people. You don't love these people. The, the shame attached to that, that, that bogs you down, that keeps you from coming to worship rightly, that teaches you that it's okay to be a hypocrite week after week. That's, that's soul-damning sort of shame. It's not good. So they don't understand. Also, this, the, the purpose is to have children. Um, what led to gay marriage, what led to sodomite marriage, is redefining marriage where the, uh, the propagation of a godly seed wasn't part of it. And so I won't marry people. I, have, I refuse to officiate the wedding if they're not open to having children. I'm not there to tell them how many children to have. 
but children is a purpose of marriage, and you tell me that you're purposely not going to have kids, I want no part of it. It's not a biblical marriage, right? It's, it's very little, uh, there's very little difference between that and a gay marriage, in my mind. And it's, it's the redefining of marriage as a romantic relationship that exists uh, for personal fulfillment uh, is, is what led to that down, uh, down the line. So we need to understand that. We understand the purpose of sex. Sex is good. We shouldn't be ashamed of it, right? And sometimes uh, you, you talk about it, people giggle like little kids, you know, like you can't have a, a grown-up conversation about it. But we have to talk about it because it's everywhere, and we need to reclaim it. We can't let it be dirtied. It's beautiful in marriage. It's, it's to tie two people together and also uh, to give us children. And children are a wonderful blessing. Um, I told this story somewhere else, but I remember after my daughter died, this girl that I worked with, she meant well. She was a stupid. She said, well, I know what you're going through. I had this dog I really loved that died, right? So, so anyway, that stuck in my mind. I thought, a day may come when I get to say something. Um, and then I was uh, working through um, kind of secession, estate planning, and whatever for my family. And I've seen that really divide families. As a pastor, you get pulled into that a lot where brothers and sisters are fighting over an estate after a parent dies. And so you have to have an executor of a will back in the States. I assume there's something like that here. And uh, so I asked her, I said, hey, uh, so Julia, let me ask you. You've got two dogs, right? They're like your babies. Oh, yeah, they're my babies. Well, um, which one would you make the executor of your estate? I mean, which one would you trust to really make a, that wouldn't divide the family, that would really think through this? And that's just like, they're not children. Come on, you know? If I'm on a, I love my dog Luther, right? And, but if we're on a desert island and I don't think I'm going to get off for a while, I'm just going to eat them, right? <laughs> I'm, I would never eat any of my kids. <laughs> I'd eat Luther in a second if I had to say, like, boy, it's been good. Uh, <laughs> come here. <laughs> uh, there's old documents like the larger catechism that has the exposition on the Ten Commandments. It's, it's really powerful. And when it gets to um, thou shalt not commit adultery, it has what is required by the commandment and what's forbidden. And it talks about undue delay of marriage. It talks about a lot of the, all the sexuality issues that we're having today. But it just wasn't developed as much as we need to develop today because all that stuff was assumed, right? Society wasn't totally crazy at the time. That was one of the benefits of a society where Christianity and the church was at the center. Now, that being said, William Gouge did tackle a ton of this stuff. Um, he was amazing. I think he really was ahead of, of everybody on this issue. And there's a three-volume set that Joel Beakey helped be republished called Building a Godly Home. Highly recommend that book. Very level-headed. Very good. The other one is Ecclesiology. There's the other lost doctrine. right? We've lost the doctrine of the local church. People think they can just hang out at home. Um, a lot of times when people talk about uh, house churches, what they really just mean is like kind of hangout time, right? Like churches are to have elders. Churches are to have order. Now, churches don't have elders sometimes right away, but, you know, ki kids aren't fully formed right when they're born. But in time, if things are healthy, they'll take full form. Churches in time should have elders. And one simple argument for local churches is Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him up from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So that just shows us that there is a universal church, a church to which all believers belong, and there's a, a multiple churches, which is a local manifestation of the whole thing. 
And so it's, Paul is not writing almost ever to individuals. It's to the saints at Ephesus, to Galatia, right? Colossae, whatever. Uh, so you, we need to recover a high view of the local church. For a long time, Nine Marks was doing a good job of that, you know, and just really has fumbled the football in these um, last few years. Membership is another doctrine. The saints at this or that church. One, one simple argument for, um, for that would be uh, the widow's list in 1 Timothy 5. So there's widows that are put on the list. And so, and that's that, that local church responsibility to take, take care of them. So clearly they know who's in and out of the church, who belongs to that, who is their responsibility to minister to. So that's, that's one place you can see that. Another one is ordination. This is the doctrine we've lost. Um, Titus says, this is what, or Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put uh, what remained into order. So finishing, ordering the church. And appoint elders in every town, as I direct you, if anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife, so on and so forth, right? So in ordination, what I just mean is uh, the appointing of qualified men to the office of elder. So appointing uh, assumes that there is some sort of ecclesiastical body, some church authority, maybe elders in that church, elders from your local association, elders from a uh, presbytery. Really, at the local level, churches are basically very similar, whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian. But there needs to be someone that's like laying hands on these people and testing them, making sure they're qualified. Qualifications are really focused on, on character, right? So you have this long list of character, but there are skills involved, which is able to teach. And I would, I would also argue managing his own household well is a combination of skill and character. This is a guy that knows how to, to, to take care of his wife, take care of his kids, how to bring order. Uh, so that, that needs to be reclaimed, not just you just can't make yourself a pastor. You can't do that, right? You're, you're called out. There's crazy times where uh, there's a great, um, the anti-Nicodemite sermons by Calvin uh, talks about what to do when you're in a Babylon, there's no other churches, but that's far outside of this. Um, the last thing that needs to be really recovered is church discipline. Matthew 18, right, there's a proper way. Go to them first, bring someone else, then bring them before the church. I would argue that's a bare minimum. That's not a maximum. So you can go to someone a couple times, right, and you can bring someone else with you a couple times. But at some point, you have to bring them before the church. Another, way, another place that we see both church discipline and membership is 1 Corinthians 5. There's a guy that's with his stepmother or mother. is like a little confusing what's going there. Whatever it is, it's not good. And he needs to be expelled from the church, which means he's in it, counted among it, right? So member of that local fellowship, and he needs to be removed from it. Another one is Titus 3. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So we have to recover that stuff. Now, two more quick points. Um, using uh, new technologies is something that we see in the early Reformation, Luther, he writes, it's wonderful how at this moment in history, all the arts have come to light, like the art of book printing, God's highest and extremest act of grace, whereby the business of the gospel is driven forward. So Martin Luther, he aggressively printed German Bibles, sermons, and all manners of pamphlets for mass consumption. So that's really the difference between Luther and Huss, right? Huss was about 100 years before Luther. They had very similar theology, but Huss died, and, and Luther didn't because he had uh, Frederick the Wise protecting him. But he also had a, a printing press where all his ideas got out there. It was, like, really hard 
to do something about it. So I think we should use our new technologies, but like things like TikTok. TikTok is so hard. I tried to do it, and I just felt too dirty, right? So I, I have to have someone else at the church to do it for me. I just can't, <laughs> I don't know. But there's so many people on there, right? They're listening, and it's amazing how many folks you can reach. I also think it's hilarious to take like commies like the Chinese and use their technology uh, to get the gospel forward. But there is a warning I want to make about technology. So technology really shapes the way you think, how you're formed. The printing press had that with the first Reformation. And an old friend of mine um, had a YouTube channel some years ago, and he was reflecting on the young, the reformed, and the restless movement. And one thing he said is, uh, one of the things that I'm convinced of is much of the inconsistency we see with young Calvinists, the so-called young, restless, and reformed, both in doctrine as well in practice, has to do in part, I believe, to just the free access of information, how easily we can find and disseminate information online in just bite-sized pieces. I do wonder whether or not many, not all, but many have developed their theological framework from blog posts, Facebook chat conversations, podcasts, and reading popular level 160-page books, and then going to the Passion Conference some years ago. Uh, when you combine all these things together, what seems to come out are some doctrinally charged young men that really may not have the depth in the Word of God, the Scripture, that Calvinists of former ages have had. And that's what I've seen. A lot of people that are experts after listening to just a bunch of podcasts, they haven't really read a challenging, hard book. And they're also reading people's thoughts on other people, as opposed to ad fontes, going back to the sources themselves or actually studying the Bible for themselves. In that spirit, um, uh, in a kind of a warning spirit, Charles Spurgeon says, master those books you have, read them thoroughly, bathe in them until they saturate you, read and reread them, digest them, let them go into your very self. Peruse a good book several times and make notes and analyses of it. A student will find that his mental constitution is more affected by one book thoroughly mastered than by 20 books he's merely skimmed. Little learning and much pride comes from hasty reading. Some men are disabled from thinking by their putting uh, meditation away for the sake of much reading. In reading, let your motto be much, not many. Right? So just people are over-consuming stuff and they're not taking the time to think through it, to meditate on it, to apply it. Last point is uh, you also see in the Reformation a ton of networking. I, uh, I don't know where I got this, but I've got a ser all of Calvin's, not all, a lot of Calvin's letters. And every once in a while I'll take time to read them. He wrote a lot to Bollinger. I was reading um, his letter to Bollinger where he's talking about they're basically trying to uh, practice church discipline. One of Calvin's big struggles is everyone thinks he was like totally in control of Geneva. Towards the end of his life, he had a ton, but early on, he was at war with um, the, the, the city, more or less the city council. And they really wanted the power of excommunication. He fought over all that, over the sacraments. But it's just interesting hearing him and Bollinger and all these other guys who were very different in the way they thought about things, riding back and, and forth. And, and that helped them think through their ideas. And uh, so networking is huge. I think um, what would be good, like for Australia, is to have Americans come over, but also go over there Right, so you can, like, we can share what has worked for us, but you can also not be blown away by us. You're like, like there's a lot of problems over there as well. Uh, but having all these connections are, are, are a blessing. It helps you work through your ideas. Uh, my simple exhortation is, is be reformers. Be applauding, 
principal pragmatist, plod, day after day after day after day after day, right? Monotony is your friend. Like all these guys, like David Platt talking about being a radical, here's what's radical. Radical is having the discipline to read your Bible, to pray, to go to church every Sunday, to raise your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to love your wife, to submit to your husband, that's radical, right? God uses that to change the world. Remember, talk is cheap. Idea men are many. I'm just an idea guy. Well, I don't need you. Um, Actually do something. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, you don't leave your church to herself, uh, but by your spirit you stir up reformers, God. Help us not to be revolutionaries that are burning everything down, uh, visionary dreamers that are unhappy with everything, but to be principal pragmatists. Let the principle be your word, God. And that we would seek to practice that, to bring that uh, practically to bear on our lives, on our churches, in our families, and in our broader community. God, we ask this especially for Australia. In your son's name, amen. Amen.